They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 30 The Hypothesis We left episode 29 with a new line of inquiry. A dental expert had suggested that the dental work done on Fred had been Soviet style. What he means by that is that done behind the Iron Curtain in the Cold War. And as we knew the dentistry was relatively recent to Fred's death, and that Fred had died in 1969 or 70, I'd started to look at how that might have happened. And that seemed to fit most neatly with the exodus of Czech refugees in 1968, brought about by the crushing of the Prague Spring by the Warsaw Pact countries earlier that year. So I needed to find out a lot more about the process by which Czech refugees came to the UK in 1968. Zoe Kuhn had also suggested that a Czech man may have been working on the third floor of the mill in the late 1960s before she and her family emigrated to Australia. So where did that fit in to the investigation? So there was plenty of work to be done and in the first half of this podcast that's what I'll be talking about. In the second half I want to take a different approach. We've spent a year now collecting as much information as we can about a case that had no clues. We started with a completely blank sheet of paper and slowly but surely we've populated that sheet with characters, information, facts and theories and we've come a long, long way. But it's probably time to take stock, take a step back, look at what we've got and try and piece together an hypothesis. This will become the working hypothesis. And from here, we'll try and test that hypothesis to see whether it's true. So for a while, we won't be looking to introduce lots of new theories unless they absolutely clearly demand attention. What we'll do is try and dig as deeply as we can into this working hypothesis. And in the second part of this podcast, I'll go through line by line what that hypothesis is. But it's only a hypothesis. It's not a conclusion. It's our best idea of what might have happened based on the best evidence we've been able to collect. So let's get back to what Zoe told us. A Czech man was working on the third floor of the mill. Now, how on earth can I find out whether there was a Czech man working on the third floor of a mill 52 years ago? Well, 
Fortunately, through this process, I've got to know quite a lot of people who were working at the mill at the time. And there was one obvious person I could check this with. And that person was Phil Smith. Phil was the finance manager at the mill at the time. He was responsible for handling everyone's wages back in the days where people would have gone every week to Phil to collect their wage packet. Phil, who has been helpful throughout this process, would know. And he did know. And there was an Eastern European man working on the third floor of the mill at that time. But he wasn't Czechoslovakian. He was Polish. Stefan Adamowicz. Steve Adamowicz, as people knew him. And Phil remembered him well. He'd been there since just after the war. A big man, well-built, six-footer, but broken by the war. Probably seen things no one should see. And he was scared to death of signing documents, terrified of authority. And he lived alone, with no family, in rooms in Fleet Street in Burton. Finding out that there was another Eastern European man, apart from Frank Kuhn, working at the mill, well, that's important information. Never discovered that before, so I'm obliged to both Phil and to Zoe for coming up with that one. And I need to dig a little bit deeper into exactly who Stefan Adamovitz was. I know he wasn't Fred, just wasn't the right build. He was there after Fred died, but he was an Eastern European at the scene of the murder. So I need to know as much as I can about him. And I know he was there in 1954 because in the newspaper archive, I can see he was involved in a crime, but he was the victim. He was stabbed by another Polish man called Adam Sardel in a hostel in Burton, probably in Fleet Street. But Stefan Adamowicz wasn't Czechoslovakian. He was Polish and he certainly wasn't a refugee in 1968. But Zoe's powers of recall, by the way, as a 10 year old are still incredible, amazing. Okay, she got the nationality wrong. She thought he was Czechoslovakian and he was a Pole, but he was on the third floor, just as she said. And it also proves to me that when Zoe says things, it's best to listen. I needed to know more about the whole Czech experience in 1968. On Facebook, I joined the British Czech and Slovak Association and I put up a post about the investigation, asking for any information anyone might have. And quite a few people liked that and quite a few people were interested in it, but nothing concrete came of it. About a week later, and not to be deterred, I posted a second post asking for anyone who came over to the UK in 1968 if they would mind speaking to me about that experience. And fortunately, I got some good replies. One lady, Jana Placek, was particularly helpful. And I arranged to have a conversation with her about that time. And I recorded that conversation. And I'm going to play part of that conversation for you now as I think it's very interesting in understanding the atmosphere of 1968 and what Czech people were facing as they were trying to escape Czechoslovakia. 
As we join the conversation, I've explained most of the details about our investigation, so we don't need to go through that. But then we started talking specifically about how Jana came to the UK. And I don't know, of course, not being Czechoslovakian, what the experience was for people coming over here in 1968. And I wanted to speak to someone who did know that, and that's why I... That's why I made contact with you, Jana. Yes, it's fine. If I can help, I will tell you what uh, what you would like to know. It sounds like you came to the UK around that time, and I'm interested in, in how you managed to do that and what the processes were in order for you to escape Czechoslovakia and come to the UK. Right. Well, in 1968, I did come to UK on the 1st of October. Mm-hmm. So I was in Prague when the Russian invasion did happen. Mm-hmm. At that time, A, we had to have a visa which was issued by the Czech police, obviously foreign department, but there had to be a visa. And without a visa, you could not apply for a British visa. Okay. 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 So I was very lucky. I actually applied or I received this visa a few days prior to the invasion on the 21st of August. Then I applied to the British Embassy for the permission to travel here for the visa, as it happened the day before the invasion. Finally received about three weeks later. With the invasion, the airport got damaged as well, so no flights Mm. because the Russians were dropping the tanks at mm. the airport, so they damaged the newish airport then. But, uh, the, you know, I then traveled three weeks later um, into Germany, following then to, to London. I see. It sounds like you already had plans. I did have plans because I had just done my A-levels. Okay. And I was hoping to come to UK to pick up some English to return. The plans then were to return... A year later, I was given a 300-day visa to stay from the Czechs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, after a little while in UK, it's not easy to go back. So I yeah. was so happy here, I never did return. And I could not return then until I um, sorted out what they call sorted out my um, situation with the Czechs, which really meant they were asking for money for the education I did get until the time I left. I see, but that was some time later. That was years later, I guess. Yes, it was 1978 by the time I was allowed for the first time Hmm. to travel there. I see. Well, that's very interesting. So it it sounds like, fatefully, uh, and luckily for you, you already had your plans in place before the invasion, which is... Uh, incredible foresight on your part, I think. Well, it was, it was, I mean, the invasion, to be honest, was not really expected from the Czech's point of view. I know. I think the world was much more aware that this was coming than we were, because obviously the information was always very limited. Um, uh, anything from the West was not uh, really, uh, you know, allowed to listen to any radio or telly, or that, that just those days didn't happen. Yeah, I understand that. So, but but you were very fortunate because you'd already had 
the, your thoughts to, of coming to the UK. I guess you were in a very small minority. Most of the people who wanted to leave Czechoslovakia at that time didn't have that foresight and therefore were in a position where they were trying to leave after the Russian invasion. I mean, was that possible or was that impossible? It was very difficult after the border was actually closed. Not long after the invasion, the border closed. People were either, again, with a permission, traveling to Yugo- former Yugoslavia mm. and uh, managing to get away from there, whether it was into Austria or mm. Germany or, or UK or wherever they could. That really was the main one because you could not travel. Well, it would be extremely lucky to get a permission to travel to to a Western country. Yeah. You yeah. know, if you might have been a party, Communist Party member, mm. and they would have been more lenient to give you the permission to go. And this is how many people escaped as well, mainly through Austria then. So therefore, the routes tended to be either through Austria and then Germany and then maybe the UK or Yugoslavia yes. and then another way. Again, possibly to UK, yes. Okay, well that's very interesting. Now, but you did need the paperwork. People just, you had to have the, the, the visa and the visa from, I guess, the receiving country as well in order to cross the border. Would I be right in thinking that? I am not sure after the invasion how, uh, certainly you had to have the paperwork. Yeah. People were just going with any paperwork, many cars crossing into Austria then, and uh, Czech uh, people on the border were fairly lenient for a little while. Yeah. Let people do, just let them get out. But presumably, as soon as the Warsaw Pact countries established control, that, I guess, quickly became much more difficult to get through the borders. Yes. Uh, well, that's very interesting. Thank you very much indeed for explaining that. I can only, can I just add one thing? There Please. were still people coming in 1969 out. Yeah. Um, my husband then, he only finished his university in 69. Hmm. And uh, then the permission to go to UK would have been to learn to a language school with that they would get a visa to go and never return. Okay. Um, the authorities were still comfortable, even, even though it was a well-known route for people to leave permanently. People I do that. really don't know whether they thought the next man would return. I really don't know. No. But uh, they were losing a lot of the young men who were coming then yeah. certainly would have been the people with the degrees, with university degrees, then leaving. Okay, interesting. When you came to the UK, were there many Czechoslo- Czechoslovak people in London and in the UK that had there was a community of them? Or were you, did you feel very much alone, if you like, as a Czechoslovak in the UK? First of all, I never did feel alone. That but there were... Czech people, not so many Slovaks, strangely enough, at that time. It wasn't a huge community, not like the Poles. They tend to uh, sort of stick together and get to know each other a lot. Yeah. But uh, in, in London, you probably know, there is Czech National House. Yeah. And because I did live at that, at that time, I lived in North London. Mm. 
I would visit time to time for dance, dinners there or something, I would go there. Uh, we just got to know each other, you know, through social circles. There wasn't really uh, much of an organized situation. Certainly the embassy wouldn't have been a possibility. You kept away <laughs> from the embassy. Now, if you don't mind, let me, let me ask you another question. When the body was found, he had a wedding ring on. Okay. Now, it was a very, very small wedding ring. In fact, it was a woman's wedding ring because this man had extremely thin hands, slim hands. And in fact, the size of wedding ring he wore was a woman's size wedding ring, although it was a man. But he wore it on the right hand, the right wedding ring yes. finger, not yes. the left wedding ring finger. Mm. That's how it is often done there in in Czechoslovakia, it was. Was that the tradition for men to wear the wedding ring on the right hand? Yes, I remember my parents both wearing it. I don't. I remember wearing it on my left hand. But um, over there, I uh, yeah, I remember wearing it on the right, my parents. Oh, well, that's very useful, Jana, because, again, that's a very strong indicator of someone from those parts. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And the, the wedding rings, often I think the men here have their wedding rings often a bigger size, isn't it? Some sort of thicker, bigger... It's not. My parents had identical, just in size, as a diameter, but they had identical rings. And this was the same. This was a ring that was a very plain band, indeed. Yes, that's right, yeah. It wasn't bought in Czechoslovakia, though. It was definitely made and sold in the UK. Oh, I see. So the wedding ring was not Czech. Also, if it was from um, the ring, if it was bought in Czechoslovakia, often they would have the ins the insider ring. They would have the name of the other uh, half and the date of the wedding. Well, that's very interesting. Very likely, if the other half was from that part, not always, but if mm. the other half was. Then the inscription would have been where if it was a lady from from UK, then not so. Tell me, do you know roughly at, at all the age of this person? I do. When he died, the average age he would have been would have been about 29, 28, 29. He could have been as young as 21. He could have been as old as 35. So he's between 21 and 35. He had light hair. He didn't have dark hair. Well, that's unusual. That's fairly unusual. Um, the Czechs are more lighter hair colour, yeah. as it has always been. Uh, also the Moravians, but as you go into Slovakia, it tends to be uh, darker hair. It's, you know, it's the age. They were all people who left with a good education. That's the really Czechs, sorry, I have to say the Czechs. Yeah. The more the working classes, you would find the people who would be more likely to be involved in the the Communist Party members and less likely to leave. The more educated people, doctors, they were the ones who were trying to get away because also, of course, as you probably know, uh, as long as they were not suitable to the Communist Party, they would have to be doing menial jobs. Of the people who came or, or escaped Czechoslovakia in 1968, it was more heavily weighted than normal towards the intellectually and, and more highly educated people. Absolutely, yes. Can I ask another question?
question on that. Was it predominantly Czech people coming away from Czechoslovakia or predominantly Slovak or was it absolutely the same? I believe there would have been more Czechs and Moravians then than the Slovaks. Was there a particular reason for that or was that just the way it happened? The, the Czech and Moravian part was industrialized when you look back couple almost couple of centuries education then was more so in the in the Czech part I have not met from that time for example in the Czech national house which would have been open of course to the Slovak people mm. I did not know there at all a Slovak person there that is very very useful so because the level of education the Czech and Moravian part of Czechoslovakia tended to be slightly higher. They tended to be the, the, the people who were most attracted to leaving. That's correct. And they would have been more persecuted as well by the regime. That's one of the reasons they just wanted to leave. If you don't mind me asking, how old were you, Jana, when you came to the UK? I was just short of 19. Okay. So I would have done my, you know, my finished my grammar school, took the A level, finished with the A levels, and I thought, right, I'll have a year in UK mm. before I um, start the university. And I did come as an au pair, okay. but yeah, never to return until 1978. The men I knew then mm. were all sort of 1944, 45 uh, born. Yeah. Time, so they would have finished their university and mm. finished their army service. I see. I see, yeah. I see. Now, just going back to this poor person that, 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 that probably died in 1969 and was probably, well, mid-20s, mid to late 20s, does that sound a little bit old for someone who came from, uh, from Czechoslovakia uh, in 1968, or is that about the right age? Well, as I said, the... the um... The, the chaps I knew were 23, 24 when they came. Okay. You know, the, the, this was the, this was so they would have finished the, the degree, finished the army, the compulsory army service, and usually coming here to do the, um, you know, learn English on the, well, they might have gone into the school and for a month in Bournemouth or somewhere like that and did some learning. But after that, they just did not go back when the visa from the Czech point of view expired. Uh, okay, so quite conceivably, by, the, by 1969 or 1970, mm -hmm. they could have been 25, 26. Yes, they would have. Okay, that's interesting. The other thing that you're... This conversation, and it's been extremely interesting, I, I really do appreciate it. Was the body discovered long time after 1969? No, it was discovered about 12 months after the body was killed. I mean, was there any attempt by the regime that took over in Czechoslovakia to hunt down people in the UK or anywhere else who had left? Or were they simply allowed to live their new lives in their new countries without any hindrance from the from the new Czech authorities? I think the second option, really. Okay. I think they didn't have the means to be tracing people or interfering. But I do not honestly think in any way they had the means, 
follow any any people who got away okay in the UK so any thoughts I might have that this man had in some way met his death because of his the fact that he had left a communist country is that just would not happen I don't think so no, no. Thank you, Yod. These, this is why conversations like this with people who have lived your experiences are so useful in relation to me understanding the background of the time and understanding how, how people who have come, come to the UK at that time from another country were, were facing those difficulties. Uh, Yana, I've taken up far more of your time than I should have done, but it's been ex extremely useful. Well, I'm glad if I could help in any way or if you can think of anything else can to ask, just give me a ring. Are you sure? That's very kind yes, of you. that's absolutely fine. Um, One final thing. Sorry, I do keep remembering things. I, meant, I mentioned to you this dentistry. Yes. And, and the fact that he'd had, although he was a young man, we know that, he'd had very extensive dentistry and really quite, quite sophisticated dentistry in, in the amount the amount of dentistry, so a dental plate and lots of fillings. But when I showed that to a number of dental experts, they said, looks like Soviet era, Eastern European, Central European dentistry. And this was a man from who had lived in that time, in that place. But you mentioned, I think, I think, and forgive me if if, if got this wrong, that, that when you came to the UK, you had your, your you had dental work, i.e. you replaced what had been done in Eastern Europe. Did yeah, I understand yeah. that correctly? Dentists thought that was awful what I had done. I never had very good teeth. I was unlucky. I had problems with calcium deficiency and um, that reflected on the state of my, my teeth. Uh, although the food, of course, the quality of food was not good. So, so people had, tend to have a lot more fillings hmm. than people of... Uh, our age then have these days here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but also a lot of people, again, coming down to the more educated people would have been looking after that those days. A person who worked somewhere of a, in a menial job wouldn't necessarily be looking so well after his other people who have seen the, the dental records have said that he seemed to have taken very particular care of his teeth. There was an aesthetic aspect to this. And you would not expect that from a factory worker. No, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Worker, but you would not. Was it possible in Czechoslovakia, pre-1968, to have private dental work, or was it all done within the regime? No. It was all done within the regime. Okay, that's very useful. And, you know, the Czechs were unfortunately very good at, um, which is unknown here, but sort of, you would go to a dentist and if you wanted a little bit better attention, you will now laugh, you might have taken a, a bunch of bananas to give him. I remember specifically somebody going, saying, oh, you, you know, I'm going to the dentist and a bunch of bananas being there to offer. All doctors, dentists were often offered little incentives yeah. from money to, to agriculture products. Anything would have been, you know, used, which sounds silly here. But um, 
uh, this person would have had to have a, either a dentist, very good dentist, who very likely would have had to have a, some gift donated to him mm. to the, or to her, to the dentist, to do that. Otherwise, it was a very standard dentistry. Well, that's very interesting. And presumably, if it was sophisticated dentistry, and correct me again if I'm wrong here, is that more likely to have happened in Prague than, than in other parts of Czechoslovakia? Definitely, definitely. But it's strange that nobody, what I'm just finding so strange, Czech people usually are pretty close. Uh, but, but there is someone somewhere in Europe who this is their son or brother or oh, sister. absolutely, absolutely. Or even father. Yes. My life's work has become to try and find this man and, and oh, give him a proper oh. burial and, a, and his family to know who he was, because he was someone. Now is no way that um, the Czech police would help. I know it's 50 years back, but they would not help of any records of... Uh, that's part of this. It's only re recently, in the last two or three weeks, that I've figured out, given the timing, this man may well be a Czech refugee. And uh, and then it's re the whole Czechoslovak aspect of this is only starting now. So my next stage in that probably will be making contact with the Czech authorities or maybe a journalist in Prague. If I can be of any help, I gladly will answer your question. You're very, you're very kind, Jana. Thank you for that. I know it was a very random contact I made, and I'm sure you thought, what on earth is this all about? But it has been invaluable, and uh, so I'm very grateful for you taking the trouble today. The pleasure is mine, Ken, and good luck, and I hope to hear from you again then, in some way. You, you definitely will, Jana. Thank, thank you. I'll thank keep you updated. Best of luck. Bye-bye. Have a good day. And bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for downloading the podcast. And to all our new listeners, wherever you are around the world, a very, very warm welcome. A couple of weeks ago, I was interviewed by Lance and Tim from the Crawl Space podcast. And I've put a link up to that interview on the Facebook page, Who Was Fred the Head? Now, that was a great experience and something I should do a lot more of, really. And I should say, the Crawl Space podcast is a top quality podcast. It's got loads of subscribers and I'm a subscriber myself and I thoroughly recommend it. But following the release of that interview last week, listener numbers have gone mad. Thousands upon thousands of new listeners in the last few days. So if you are new to the podcast, if you've been eagerly gorging your way through 29 episodes, it's fantastic to have you along for the ride. And feel free, by the way, to reach out to me on Facebook or by email. The email address is fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. So fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com. I answer every email and it's always good to hear your theories and your ideas. And talking about theories and ideas, I promised you a hypothesis. So make yourself a cup of tea. Get yourself a biscuit. Here goes. So, let's try and pull this hypothesis together. Over the last 29 episodes, 
there have been certain things that I've come across that I've come to rely on as being much more likely to be true than not true. And I'm going to list those out and there are 20 of them. 20 things I think we can rely on and those 20 things will create the framework that I'm going to take forward as part of the hypothesis. The hypothesis has to fit them all and I'm going to take you through every one of those 20. Firstly, the dentistry was not done in England. Therefore, this man spent perhaps the majority of his life outside the UK. There's no record for the dentistry and the style suggests otherwise. Two, he had very shallow or no roots whatsoever in the UK. He was unmissed, he was unreported and no work or NHS records exist for him. Three, the dentistry was performed recent to his death. Therefore, he was in another country about a year before he died. Four, he married or was in a significant relationship in the UK. That ring was English made and English sold. Therefore, he bought it and put it on in the UK. That will leave some kind of trace. This relationship he had must have been with a significant other person. Five, he arrived in the UK within a year of his death. Six, his skull suggests a Central or Eastern European origin. We know that from university, we know that from the teeth, and we know that from the lack of records. Seven, he died at some point between spring 1969 and summer 1970. We know that from the rings dates, the hallmarks. We also know from the state of decomposition. Eight, his clothes were taken away to conceal his identity and it worked. Nine, therefore, his clothes were significant. There was something about his clothes that were unusual that would have greatly enhanced the chances of him being identified. What was that? 10. He had fair hair, something that is fairly unusual for someone coming from a Central or Eastern European destination. 11. He was known to his killers. This was not a random murder. He was selected to be murdered. 12. Any questions about his disappearance could easily be explained away. This suggests some kind of itinerant worker, someone without a permanent residence who moved around a lot. 13. He was not, though, a manual worker. His hands were very, very well kept. They did not suggest a man rolling barrels around a Burton brewery. 14. His appearance was of significant importance to him. Why? More importance than the average person. 
15. I think he was an educated man. He could afford dentistry wherever he had come from and clearly his appearance it mattered to him. Suggests to me someone with above average education and prospects. 16. He left his country of origin in 1968 or 1969. We know that dentistry ties him to that date in his previous country. 17. His death was either accidental or expertly performed to leave no obvious cause of death when found. I suspect the latter. I suspect he was killed by someone who had killed before and killed discreetly. 18. His burial site may have been prepared beforehand. He would have been needed to be taken to the burial site, but so would tools to and from the site in order to dig his grave. 19. The murderers took the body and the tools to and from the site and left no trace. 20. The shallow burial, upright, risked inevitable discovery. Even in an unknown location, that location floods regularly. That soil is washed away regularly. That suggests to me the killers did not need the body to remain undiscovered forever. Just long enough to put enough distance between themselves and the body. They are my 20 beliefs about this case. Using those, I'm now gonna construct a hypothesis as to what I think happened. We'll then, in subsequent episodes, try and find evidence that supports that hypothesis. So, here goes. In late 1968, a Czechoslovakian man arrives in the UK, part of the general exodus of people from Czechoslovakia caused by the political upheaval in that country. He's an educated man in his mid-twenties, and an attractive man, fair, slim, well-kept, and smart. But why does he end up in Burton? Well, Burton's claim to fame is that it's the UK's big brewery town. And I'm thinking he may know something about brewing or may come from a town in Czechoslovakia that had some kind of brewery connections. Places like Prague, Pluzhenia, Česka, Budovice. But he's not a manual worker. He's probably a chemist or an accountant, even a hairdresser or a shop assistant. And he finds his way to Burton, though he has no friends, no contacts whatsoever in the area. But he manages to find lodgings, maybe initially in one of the hostels for migrant workers that do definitely exist in Burton at the time. And then maybe later, renting a room in the area as people did. Somehow, in the year that he's living in Burton before he dies, he develops a close relationship with someone. A very close relationship. And I don't know the nature of that relationship. Don't know whether it's straight or gay. 
but there was one. And in a relatively short period, that relationship soured and soured very badly. And it soured in such a way that risked very significant reputational damage to the other person. And that damage could have been embarrassment, exposure, or even blackmail. And that issue intensified to such a point that our man Fred needed to be taken care of. And Fred was killed in order to take that problem away by the other party and disposed of in a place familiar either to that other party or an accomplice of that other party. Fred wasn't killed where he was buried. He was killed somewhere else and he was stripped and he was transported there in a pre-planned operation to a pre-planned burial site. The people involved in his death then left Burton. That's where I'm going with. It's a hypothesis, it's not a conclusion, but I think it fits the 20 points. But that is what we're gonna use as the framework for the next series of episodes, as we dig deeper and deeper into what happened to Fred. But there's one final thing you need to know about. I learned last week that only 6% of podcasts that are launched ever get past episode 10. 94% don't. And here we are at the end of episode 30. But at this point, we're going to take a short break. So this really is the end of series one. And it's been an amazing year. The good news is that I'm already planning season two. And I can already tell you when the first episode of season two will be released. It will be released on Sunday, July the 17th. And you can set your watch by that because I never break my promises. But if you need a Ken fix, well, there's always the other podcast, The Mysterious Case of the Gentleman of Heligoland. That's going to be continuing every two weeks throughout that period. I want you to think about the last 30 episodes as 30 chapters in a book. Book one. Book one of a trilogy. Where in book one, we find out as much information as we possibly can. Book two, we identify exactly who Fred was. And book three, we identify the killer. That's the way I'm thinking about it. So it's a good place to take stock at the end of book one. And book two will also probably take 30 chapters and book three might. But book two and book three will definitely be written because if we don't write them, no one else will. So put a ring around Sunday the 17th of July 2022 because that's when book two begins. And I want you there with me. I need you there to be listening when we turn that first page over in that book. But that's for next time. So until next time, have a good one.
The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.